Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's good to see so many of you this morning. Some of you um, here maybe for the first time or new to our church, and so uh, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, we, have, we have been in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Matthew and, and kind of in the middle of a mini-series in the Gospel of Matthew walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is in many ways the quintessential kind of Christian text from the Bible. It's Jesus' vision for what he calls the kingdom of heaven. And so we come to a, a rather lengthy passage this morning, actually, from Matthew chapter 5. It, it really is one unit, and I'm going to try to show you that. And so that's why we took it all at the same time. But you're going to be, you know, some of you are going to think there's no way. We're going to be here for two days. Some of you are going to think, man, there's so much stuff he's not going to be able to get to that I wish we could get to, and that is true. So just temper your expectations this morning. Uh, we're going to try to read this long passage together and then and think about it together for a little bit, okay? So if you have a Bible, you'd like to follow along with us, you can from Matthew 5. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. One warning, it may be that I read something in, on here that's not up there. I made some changes last minute, and I'm not sure that everybody got communicated, and that's on me. So just be, be aware that, Susan, if I, if I go off the page up here, just hang in there. I'll come back to it. I may, I may, may add something, okay? So let's read together from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 47. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Listen to this phrase. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering a gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile. Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, is verse 48 in New Again. Didn't get put up there. Be perfect, he says, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? My favorite thing in my house right now is my children. Um, Abigail, go brush your teeth. I can't, Daddy. You did it last night. I just can't. You know, or Canaan, take the dog out for a walk, please. Oh, I can't. I just can't. No, you can. You won't. Right? You, <laughs> I got an amen. Look at that. You won't. It's not that you can't. You won't. Uh, it's so easy to come to this ver- this, these verses and say, oh, I, I can't. Man, that's impossible. And I'm going to try to make a case for you this morning that that's not, in fact, what Jesus is intending to convey to us. I'm going to spend a lot of time... Uh, in the introduction, to set up what Jesus is trying to teach us in this part of his sermon. So if you look there, verses 17 through 20 is really the meat of this whole section. And then, so Jesus lays out a spiritual principle in verses 17 through 20. And then the rest of the chapter provides applications of that principle. So it's all one unit. It's, it's linked by this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And that, so that's why we're trying to do this whole thing in one week, because it really is, it really does go together. Now, what we need to understand is, is that as you come to passages like this, or as you deal with Jesus just in general, there are really two tendencies which he is very concerned about within these verses. And the first is this, that, gos- that the gospel, as we talk about it, is not irreligion. See, the first tendency to come to a passage like this is to say, you know, the Old Testament laws or the things that Jesus is telling me here, they're not, they're no longer relevant. They don't matter. They can be completely abandoned. In other words, uh, the Old Testament laws are completely irrelevant to my life. Obedience to the law is optional. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter whether you obey Jesus or not. Just as long as you've made a decision, you've, you've come to church regularly, you walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, these sorts of things. The view is called antinomianism, which is really just a big theological word that makes you know people like me who went to school for that stuff feel really smart that they can say things like that. But it means basically this. It means irreligion. Irreligion. And in verses 18 and 19, you'll see there, Jesus attacks this. He says, verse 18, until heaven or earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. That's a way of saying we might say, you know, until hell freezes over, which might not be very long from now, things keep going the way it's been recently. Right? It's global warming. Or, I'm sorry, climate change. Whatever the nomenclature is now. You know, it's, it, G- Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. Until hell freezes over, he warns, that those who relax, the word there means untie or slacken or to undo or to dissolve. Even the smallest command is least in the kingdom of heaven. And so his standard in verse 48, which I regret didn't get printed in the worship folder, 
His standard is just this. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The gospel is not your religion. The gospel, you know, Jesus demands careful, diligent obedience to every command in the scripture, every jot, every tittle. So the gospel is not your religion. But here's the thing is there's a second tendency, and that second tendency is, is the gospel's not religion either. See, the other side of this is to try carefully and literally to obey the law as a way of earning righteousness, as if nothing's changed in the coming of Jesus, and that's religion. So a religious person believes that obedience to the law results in salvation. I obey the law, I get salvation. But Jesus rejects this view also. Look in verse 20. He says in verse 20, that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that word exceed means to be greater than or of greater quality. So we're going to have to come back to that in just a minute. But what I want you to see is, is there's really a third way that Jesus is pointing us to here. There's not, not irreligion and not religion. Jesus is pointing us to a third way. And that third way is what we call the gospel. Not irreligion and not religion. Something completely different, something else. And you see, we know it's not religion because in verse 17... We're told that Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's come to fulfill it. And that word fulfill is one of these great words that Matthew really sees as very significant. And it frames everything else that Jesus says about this passage. It means to consummate or to bring to realization. That's what that word means there. And so what Jesus wants us to see is that every aspect of the law was intended by God to point to him who would come as its fulfillment. Every sacrifice pointed to him as the sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. Every cleansing ritual pointed to the cleansing power of his blood. Every office, the prophet, the priest, and the king pointed to him and his offices. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to every aspect of the law, to the tiniest consideration. And even in his death, he fulfilled the law by suffering the just penalty of the law demanded of those who violated it. You see, the law, the law was never intended by God to be a method of earning your salvation. It was meant to point us to the coming of Jesus. But here's what we see also, see, but not only is the gospel can't be religion, it can't be irreligion either because Jesus has not come to set aside the law. He's come to fulfill it. And in Romans 8, which is your assurance of pardon, and you can look back in your worship folder, but in Romans 8, we're told by, by the Apostle Paul that part of what it means that Jesus is fulfilling it is that he's fulfilling the law in us. He says in verse 4 that the righteous requirements of the law would be fully met or fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the gospel can't be religion, and it can't be irreligion either because there's an expectation of obedience. There's a real righteousness that characterizes our lives. So take this summary if you can. If I could just summarize all this. Take the categories of faith, faith and works. Faith and works. Um, and, and know that this is the way this works in our world. So an irreligious person believes that faith is all important and works are irrelevant. So it doesn't matter how you live. Just believe in Jesus or just believe in Allah. Right? Or just just have some kind of some idea of a religious commitment. So, you know, an irreligious person says it's faith that matters, not works. A religious person says, no, 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 it's really works that matter. It's not faith. Follow the rules, right? Here's what being a Christian is. It's, it's doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. But what the Bible teaches, and what I want us to see in this passage, is the Bible teaches that both these views are wrong. 
that both faith and works are necessary. It's faith showing itself or proving itself in works is what the Bible talks about. Or, or let's say it a different way, what really makes you a Christian is that there are works, but that those works come from faith. So faith energizes works. Works are sourced in faith. Faith without works is not faith. Works without faith aren't works. And if you're not completely confused by now, hopefully we can open that up a little bit. This is what Jesus means when he says that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 20. So what we have here is a description of the kingdom heart. So three things I want us to see this morning. And I told you I was going to spend a lot of time getting to this, but three things about a kingdom heart this morning from this text. First, what is it? Second, what does it look like? And third, how do you get it? So those are the three things we need to try to unpack here. A kingdom heart, what is it? What does it look like? And how do you get it? Okay, so let's just walk through this passage a little bit together by asking first, what is a kingdom heart? Look at verse 20 again with me for just a minute, and you'll see there that Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, (laughs) the, the Pharisees have gotten a really bad rap, quite honestly. I mean, when Jesus makes that statement, they weren't considered the bad guys. They were the good guys. They were, in this culture, highly esteemed and respected because of their commitment to holiness. They were very religious. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a root that means to set apart. So they were seen as being a cut above everybody else, right? Jesus' statement that if you want to get into the kingdom, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees would have been laughable to his audience, It would have sounded, I thought of some cultural equivalents. It would have sounded a little bit like this. Can you imagine applying for season tickets in Gainesville and being told this? You have to be a bigger supporter and fan of Florida Gator football than than the Ben Hill Griffin family. Is that possible? Or answering a classified ad for a roommate in the paper and being told you have to be a better homemaker than Martha Stewart. Or an online dating service that said, here's the thing, uh, you have to be more attractive than Josh Holloway from Lost. Not that I find him attractive. You have to be funnier than Robin Williams and tougher than Russell Crowe in Gladiator and more sensitive uh, than John Cusack and Say Anything, all wrapped up in one. Right? That's what this would have sounded like. I mean, that's impossible. And I really, you know, I thought I was going to get more laughs out of that. I know, I know. So anyway, you know, you, you, you hear that and you say, it's just utterly impossible. It's utterly impossible. There's not a single person in this room, myself included, I'm at the bottom of the list, who, is, who has, is as committed to personal holiness as all of the scribes and the Pharisees would have been. I mean, they believed, this, this was their central belief, they believed that if Israel would begin to follow the law of Moses, then Messiah would come. And so their obedience and their commitment to the Mosaic law would bring the kingdom. That's what they believed. And so to help people with that, they came up with the halakha, or the oral tradition, which were commandments um, over and above the commandments of the Bible. Oral commandments that were to help answer questions about the law or to fill in gaps in the law. You know, you could consider it religious extra credit. I mean, it's what it was. So, in other words, you know, there's a command in the law, honor the Sabbath and don't work. But what was work? I mean, what kind of activities qualified as work? 
and what didn't. You know, or the, the Bible might say, love your neighbor. But then the question, obviously, if, you, you know, if you're sneaky like me, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, who am I really required to love? In fact, a scribe came to Jesus asking that question in the New Testament, didn't he? And what the Pharisees and the, the scribes were doing the oral law is they were trying to answer this question to add on to what the Scripture had already claimed to be the way of righteousness so that people could be very careful and very diligent in their pursuit of a righteous life. There's not a single person in this room, myself included, that, were, that are as committed to holiness as they were, and yet Jesus says that if we are to enter the kingdom, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What could he possibly mean? Now, at the very least, I want to say, he means obedience is not optional. 100% obedience is the goal. Jesus says we are to love our enemies. I want to tell you, he expects us to love our enemies. The way most Christians read this is to say, you know, well, that's impossible. And immediately they say, well, Jesus is righteous and I'm not, so it must be referring to Jesus' righteousness and not mine. I really, I really, yes, of course. But I think there's a deeper meaning that we have to get to here. And that is that in order to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to obey. But that obedience has to come from a different motivation and it has to have a different goal. There's a different quality of obedience. It's not just that you have to obey. It's not irreligion. There's obedience. But it's not religion either because in your obedience there is a different motivation for that obedience and there is a different goal for that obedience. So very quickly, a different motivation. Let's just talk about that for one minute. It's not enough to follow the rules. You need a new heart. That's what Jesus is telling us here. That it is possible, it's very possible to do all the right things, to focus on the actions that the law requires, and to, at the same time, ignore the inner dimensions of the human personality, character, the heart. You know, the church is full of people who are there every time the doors open and who serve on committee after committee and who are incredibly committed, you know, to the cause of Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit, you know, joy and peace and patience and kindness, well, those are things that people would never use to describe us. I mean, we need a new heart. If you think about what Jesus has done in this sermon so far, Jesus is concerned with the kind of people we're becoming. So much more than the things we're doing. Just think about the Beatitudes. It's not a list of things to do. It's a description of a certain kind of person. A person who's poor in spirit and meek and merciful. And Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees over and over again is that they're overly concerned with external appearance and, and neglect the inner motivations of the heart. He called them whitewashed tombs. They were clean and beautiful on the outside, but inside they were disgusting and filthy and full of corruption. So the issue is not just obedience, but obedience with the right motivations. That, that, an obedience that comes from a heart that has been radically changed through grace. You see, see, sin is a besetting selfishness that taints everything we do, even our good deeds. And if the spring is unhealthy, then obviously it's going to feed into every part of our body in other words, in order to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, we need a new source. We need a new heart. Otherwise, we might be doing lots of good things, but those good things will be full of self-interest. Uh, an interesting uh, illustration of this, I, for, my, for Christmas, 
my wife got us tickets to Wicked at Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center, which is there right now. And I don't know if you're familiar with the show. I love this stuff. Uh, I am very girly in many ways, and I love getting dressed up and going to the theater. I think it's really cool. Um, so mock me later if you want. Uh, but but this, this show in particular, if you don't know it, it's, it's the story of the Wicked Witch of the West from her perspective, the story of Dorothy and, and Oz and all this kind of stuff. And what comes out very quickly is, is that she's not nearly as wicked uh, as she was por- portrayed to be. And there's a, there's a character, she's juxtaposed against a character called Glinda the Good. And Glinda the Good uh, is, she's, you know, this blonde girl who's always dressed perfectly and like a little princess. And it's just, she's just really sweet and everybody thinks she's the greatest. And what's, what's neat is to watch it is she's just so self-consumed. I mean, one reviewer I, I was looking at just said she's a pretentious goody-goody. Um, and she doesn't ever think about anybody other than herself in all of her doing good. And really, you sit there, and it's hilarious and painful at the same time. I mean, you laugh. You really, you laugh when you start to interact with this character, and you begin to laugh because here's what you do. I, I'm, and you start to think of all the people in your life that she reminds you of, Right? And then eventually it starts to get really uncomfortable. I mean, if you see, it gets really uncomfortable because it's so out there. It's so, it's so hyperbolic. I mean, it's so, or the characterization of this girl is just so out there, but you know it's a picture of your own heart and it's just gross. See, you need a new, you need a new source. You need a new motivation because if not, you could do good things, but everybody else around you, you may not know it, but everybody else around you will know, man, you're just full of yourself. You're only thinking about yourself. Good deeds don't necessarily mean you're being de-selfed. But you need a new goal too. And the goal, the goal is love. The source is love. It needs to come out of love, not self-interest, but the goal has to be love too. And you think of the Pharisees. They did all their good works to be seen. They needed to be well thought of. They desired places of honor and the approval of others. They were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to gain, you know, a righteousness for themselves through their own moral achievement. And Jesus says that as long as you obey to prove yourself and to make a name for yourself, it counts for nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can give everything away that you own and even become a martyr for the faith and it count for nothing because it not be motivated by love. So, You know, guys who worked on the Mercy Project yesterday, thank you for doing that. But even think through going to somebody's house and putting a new roof on their house because they need one. You can do that for all kinds of motivations. What's your motivation? Because you you can do good things like that because it makes you feel good about yourself or because you have a guilty conscience or because you think it will get you into heaven. You know, there are all kinds of ways that you can do good things and be selfishly motivated in the doing of them. You can do it and the whole time be thinking about yourself. And not do it out of love for the person you're helping. But the motivation has to be love. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The motivation has to be love. And so in the play, in the show that we went to Friday night, Elphaba, who is the wicked witch of the West, who really is the one who really has some moral fiber and integrity to her, right? She gets to the end and she realizes that in all of her trying to do uh, good things, it's not gone well. And so she, there's a line in one of the songs at the end of the, at the, end of the show. And it says, one question haunts me. And hurts too much, too much to mention. Was I really seeking good or just seeking attention? Is that really what good deeds are when looked at with an ice cold eye? Do you see what she's, she's trying to, she's trying to get beneath the surface of even the good things that we do and ask really hard questions. And what we see Jesus doing 
in this passage is He is come, and through the power of the Spirit and through His work on our behalf, He is creating a new humanity, a new human community, new people defined by love. Not self-interest, not self-concern, love. He's teaching us what it means for us to be a people who love. And so verses 21 through 48 are just examples of that. And I'm not going to spend time. I just want to ask questions and walk you through all the different scenarios that Jesus asks us to think through and asks us what are the demands of love here. So, for example, if you look at verses 21 through 26, Jesus asks, he's asking us to consider how do you love in conflict? How do you love somebody who has something against you? Because you're called to love that person. And when you discover that somebody is holding a grudge or somebody has something against you, how do you love them? Jesus says love should be such a priority that whatever you are doing, everything else in your life stops until that relationship is healed. You don't wait for that person to come to you. If you hear that somebody has something against you, you go find that person and do everything you can to make that right. Because, again, love's the agenda. Love's the motivation. Love's the goal. He goes on in verses 27 through 30. How do you love when you're physically attracted to a person you're not married to or who is married to somebody else. That's sticky. Jesus said it's not enough to avoid the physical act of adultery. You have to go after your heart. You, you, can't, sexually, you can't let sexual desire just run rampant in your life. You have to be diligent. Why? Because that's love. I mean, no man... No, I, I feel fairly confident I can say this with authority, that no man who is looking at pornography is asking, how can I love this woman? But if you're a Christian, that's exactly what you're called to do. And so I have a friend, Tim Ostrovers in Lakeland, who's just, whenever he is tempted to lust, he just starts to pray for that woman. I mean, how can I love her? How do you love in marriage? Verses 31 and 32. How do you love in marriage? And Jesus says you can't just wake up one day and decide you no longer want to be married. I mean, Moses allows for divorce because of the hardness of the human heart, but Jesus, remember, is coming with a new heart. And so he says there in those verses that the only reason for divorce, and this could get me in trouble, come talk to me about it later if, if you don't agree or you don't understand, but the only reason for divorce in the Christian community is when it is done as an act of love. When it's done for the honest good of the people involved because there's been betrayal and cruelty that's just unrepairable. So if it's not love, it's not permissible. How do you love with the words you speak? Verses 33 through 37. You see that? Verses 38 through 42, we've got to keep moving. How do you love the person who's taking advantage of you? Somebody who's just running all over you, who's using their power and their authority to, to just take advantage of you. In the Old Testament, the rule was an eye for an eye. I mean, if somebody killed your brother, you kill their brother. If somebody injured your ox, you, you know, were to give them their, your ox in return. But Jesus says, verses 39 and 40, don't let your rights and your personal needs get in the way of love. If somebody asks you to, you know, carry their backpack for a mile, carry it too. If somebody takes you to court and wants to sue you for their tunic, your, for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. I remember when my daughter Sarah was newborn, and you know how newborns are. They get woken up easily. My neighbor had two dogs that literally were out five feet outside of her door, and they barked constantly. And she was not sleeping, and therefore we were not sleeping, and I was just, I was at my wit's end. And I remember we were reading in CBR, and we came across 1 Corinthians 6. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you know, 
you're called to love one another. And he's talking about lawsuits because literally my neighbors were like, well, why don't you call the police? Or, you know, it's like across the fence in my neighborhood about these dogs that were waking my daughter up. And I just was, how do I love him? And I remember we went to 1 Corinthians 6, and there Paul's talking about lawsuits among Christians. And he says these words in verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. And then he just asked the question, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, isn't love more important than those things? And I just thought, oh, my goodness. How do you love a person who's taking advantage of you because you're called to love them? Verses 43 through 48, how do you love your, I mean, your enemies? You see that? You've heard it said, love, your, love, love those who love you and, and hate your enemies. But I say to you, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where do you get a heart to do that? How does that happen? So you see, that's what we've got to do. We've got to finish by just asking this question in just the few minutes that we have together remaining, what is the source then of this exceeding righteousness that Jesus is calling us to? Where does it come from? How do you get it? Now, I want to focus for a few minutes on these last few verses in verses 43 through 48, actually 38 through 48, kind of down at the bottom of your your little page there. Uh, how this normally works, how love normally works um, Typically, we love those who love us. Jesus says that even the tax collectors do that, and that, by the way, was a slam. I mean, that's like saying, you know, even Gator fans can do that, <laughs> right? If you're a Seminole or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, it's just the lowest, you know, the lowest possible. I mean, that's, that is nothing because even tax collectors get that thing done. Yeah, it's the natural way of seeing things. When somebody does good towards you, what it does is it, it puts a seed of love in your heart and you can't wait to repay it, Right? I mean, I remember when we, we, at one point in our ministry, uh, before we planted this church, we were traveling and we were having to raise money, and I got a call from a friend who said, what's your mortgage payment? And I told him, he said, I'm going to pay it for you. And for three years, they, that family paid our mortgage payment. Now, I would die for those people, right? Why? Because they, the, the good that they have done to me is so profound that it is put in my desire in my heart, a desire to repay that. Or, you know, when a, when a woman brings another woman a meal after she has a baby, boy, when that person, you know, it's time for that person, you know, the lady's the first one to sign up, right? Why? Because there's this interchange of love. That's, that's the way, that's the good way it typically works. But it can go bad too, right? Because here's how this works. If that's true, if this is the exchange of love that is natural to the human condition, then, then in a bad way, I can begin to love you because you love me. In other words, you meet my expectations, uh, my needs are met in the relationship, but the moment I'm not getting out of the relationship what I think I'm entitled to, then I'm not obligated to love you anymore. And if you've ever experienced that, you know that's not love. That person is not loving you. That person is using you. It happens in friendships. It happens in marriages all the time. And the reason it works this way is that we source our love for one another. We source our love for the other person in their love for us. I need to try to, I need to take 30 seconds to explain this to you because this is really important. In other words, I am motivated to love Ashley because she does such a good job of loving me. But what about the times when she doesn't do a good job of loving me? What do I do then? What about when there's no kickback? What about when there's nothing in it for me? And that's exactly what Jesus is asking us 
to do in these verses. He says in verse 43, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do you love an enemy? How do you love someone who's persecuting you? How do you love a person who has physically attacked you? I mean, how do you love a person, verse 40, who's taking you to court? How do you love the person who is stronger than you and who has authority over you and is abusing that authority and using it to take advantage of you? How do you love the boss who demands long hours with no overtime pay? How do you love, verse 41, teenagers, how do you love a parent who is unreasonable and only thinks about themselves? Verse 42, how do you love the homeless person who just needs help and can't offer you anything in return? What you can't do is you can't source your love for them in their love for you. You've got to go somewhere else to find love for an enemy. You've got to find another power source to plug your life into. And that's what makes a Christian different. Look at verse 47. Because here's the really important part of this passage. Do you see the little phrase in verse 47? Jesus says, if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do than others? And the more there is the same word as in verse 20, where he says that we have a, must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It means of greater cal- caliber, of greater quality, superior or uncommon. What makes a Christian different is a life of love that is so out of the ordinary, so over and beyond the normal experience, a life of love that is so powerful, so uncommon that it begs for an explanation. I mean, how do they do that? Where do they get the energy to love like that? Where does that kind of love come from? Jesus is saying, that's a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so where do you go find the power to love like that? What is the power source for that? And Jesus says, if you look down there in verses 44, 45, 46, and 47, Jesus says the power comes and it's found in the heart of God, that we are to love our enemies because that's how God has loved us. That's what God does. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says in verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, it's the life of God giving expression through our life. It's the heart of of God that is animating our heart to obedience, the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. That's the source. That's the power source we've got to plug into because if you think about this passage, it's just showing us it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus didn't resist evil. When Peter took his sword and swung at Malchus, Jesus told him to put it away and he healed the servant. He didn't call for legions of angels to come, but willingly carried on with his mission. When the guards struck him on the cheek at his trial, he did not strike back. He turned the other cheek and he endured all the hostility and the abuse that they had to offer. When the soldiers forced him to take up his cross, he carried it, carried it until he was absolutely exhausted. And as they nailed his hands and his feet into the wood, he looked at those who were acting as his enemies and said, Father, forgive them. I mean, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all that the law pointed to. He is love. He is love. And so there's only one way that you can have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that is to stare at the glorious beauty of Jesus' life and to know that if you put your faith in him, you can be beautiful too. The truth of the gospel is, is that you can have his righteousness. His perfect record of love can be yours as well. When you stop trying to be good in your own strength and you just begin to stand in awe at the wonder of Jesus' love. That's the first step. That's how the new heart comes. You have to stop thinking about yourself and stop thinking of yourself as good and to see that you really are wicked and even in your good deeds and then see how God has loved you in Jesus 
That's the gospel. And then to know that Jesus not only came to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, he has risen again and ascended into the Father. Jesus is alive, and the Scripture teaches that he lives in us. And if we believe in him, he can put his spirit in us, and he will come, and he will take up residence in our hearts, and he will teach us how to love. That's the promise of the gospel. But you have to link your life into the electricity of the coming kingdom. You have to go back and source your love in the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Now, one diagnostic, one diagnostic exercise as we close. How do you know? Then how do you know if you're doing this right? How do you know if you're, you know, if if this is beginning to work itself out in your life? How do you know if God's beginning to produce in you a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? One diagnostic. If that happens, you're going to start getting it from both sides. And here's what I mean by that. Remember, it's not religion and it's not irreligion. It's something different. And so here's what's going to happen. Religious people are going to look at you and are going to begin to accuse you of being irreligious. If you're really living the life that Jesus is calling you to, religious people are going to look at you and and really begin to, to consider you irreligious. They're going to say, you're too casual. You're not serious enough. But at the same time... Irreligious people are going, to look, are going to look at your life and they're going to be, begin to criticize you for being too religious. You know, you're, you're closed-minded. You're intolerant. So when you're around irreligious people, they'll accuse you of being religious. And when you're around religious people, they'll accuse you of being irreligious. That's how you know, because a Christian is something different. And so let me just ask, are you different? Is your life so remarkable that it shows up the contrast between the beauty of Jesus and what's around you? Or are, do you just blend in? Is there something more, something greater, something exceeding about your life than what people are used to? Is there a difference? And is that difference love? Let's pray. Jesus, um, on our own, we are powerless to obey, to obey you. Uh, we, we just do not have the capacities in our fallen self to even begin to think about how we would love uh, our enemies. I confess to you, I don't love my wife well, and she is beautiful. And I don't, and I don't love my kids well. And they are, they're the most amazing creatures in the world to me. How in the world am I ever going to begin to be the kind of person who can love my enemies? And so, Jesus, we need for you to come and begin by your Spirit to work into our hearts um, a, a new heart, a new motivation of love. We need you to come and help us. Help us to link our lives back to the electricity that is available to us in the kingdom. To, to go to you as the source of our power as we seek to, to love one another well and love even our enemies. And I pray that you would come and that you would help us to have a different goal. That love, that love would be the overriding characteristic of our lives. And that in every inter- engagement with one another, every interaction that we have with one another, with our neighbors, with our city, as we go about the places you've called us to, that that the question we would have is, what does love require of me here? Jesus, would you teach us to love? And would that love that you that you produce in us be so beautiful, so so different, so mind blowing that it would cause those who do not know you to stand up and say, what what is it with those people, and who is it that they serve? So we may may you gain great glory through us. We make that our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. What a perfect ending. Uh, if you are not a Christian, you're new to church, or you're just trying to figure out what all this means, then the promise of this benediction is, is that if you come to Jesus, 
Because remember, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. Repent and believe. Come to him. You will find him, arms extended, as mine are now. I administer in his name uh, to receive you. If you, are Christ- if you are a Christian and you've been around the church forever, but you're beginning to realize that what you need the most is not to go out and just work yourself to death, but you need to come and to stare at the beauty of Jesus and to have him embrace you, then his arms are open to you as well to come. All of that is in the promise of the benediction. So receive this benediction this morning then uh, as you go to be the light and the salt that Jesus sends you to be. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.